Amen, amen. Well, you guys go ahead and take a seat. Hey, if you have a Bible, and I hope that you do, grab that, maybe over in the book of Daniel. Daniel chapter 11 and 12, we are going to wrap up the book of Daniel today. If you've been around here for the last several weeks, it has been a long journey, but a good one, hopefully, through the book of Daniel, and we're going to dive into the deep end one more time. Now, just to give you a little runway of what's happening coming up is um, next week, we're going to jump into a sermon series called Teach Us to Pray, where we're going to walk through the Lord's Prayer for the next six weeks, and then we always do a summer in the Proverbs or the Psalms, we'll do that. And then moving into the fall, we're going to go through the book of Acts probably for the next year. So that's just a big runway for where we're going. Hey, real quick, is David Chung in the room? That works really well when you're not. All right. Um, he's out there somewhere. David led, he's our, he's our church planting resident. He led our prayer night on Wednesday night while I was out of town. There you go. And it was great. So I just want, I just want to take a second. Now, here's the deal. Since he's not in here, let's shame him, but let's, let's just clap. Seriously, he did such a fantastic job leading us through this. If you're not involved with our monthly prayer time on Wednesday nights, it's the last Wednesday of every month, I'd love to just give him a round of applause and thank him for what he did. And then when you see him, be like, hey, I heard you weren't at church today. Where were you? Just kidding. Uh, hey, my, he is here. He's serving his tail off because that's what he does. He's a servant. My favorite sports interview of all time happened on May 2nd, 2002, when Allen Iverson got up to the mic after he was berated for not being at practice. Anybody ever seen this? Any, yeah, and he gets up there and 22 times, 22, he says, practice, man. We talking about practice. Like I'm the franchise player and we talking about practice. Like why are we talking about practice? He does it 22 times, at nauseum. I loved it. It was fantastic. Malcolm Gladwell, he actually says that it takes 10,000 hours to become an expert at your trade, which means if you still think my sermon stink, just hang in there. We got time. We're going to get better. They say that Tiger Woods practices 13 hours a day. That might be a problem. Um, he might be doing a little more than he should, but 13 hours a day. And I just got done watching this Netflix documentary series on the... The U.S. Olympic basketball team, if you didn't know this, before the Dream Team came along, um, it was all amateur basketball players that competed in the Olympics. We got tired of getting our butts kicked, so we let the professionals compete, and they kicked some butt. All right, then there came a problem as this all-star team came together. They weren't gelling together, so they hired Coach K, the greatest basketball coach to ever live, go Duke, and, and they brought him together, and they said, we need you to fix this. Well, they brought all these all-stars together, Carmelo Anthony, like, uh, Allen Iverson, but they all had a bunch of egos, right? Well, one night, they decided while they were out in Vegas that they were going to go out for the night, and what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas, so we're not going to talk about that. And about 4 a.m., as they returned to the hotel, they watched Kobe Bryant walking into the gym to go practice. And it said that that's what changed the culture of the entire team, is he led by practicing. Daniel chapter 11 and chapter 12, as you're rounding home base to get to where we're going, is essentially the game plan for what's to come. What you're going to see is the angel Gabriel, through God, wants to let the church know what's going to happen, because watch this, because it's a warning that you can't just show up for the game and not be prepared. Practice in the Christian life matters. What you do now, God is sitting here telling Daniel through, through, uh, through Gabriel, tell them, here's what's going to happen, and I need them to be ready. Start practicing now. 
Because maybe, maybe, maybe if you're honest, you wonder sometimes, like, why does all this matter? Why do I need to be engaged in a church? Why do you care if I'm in a small group? Why do I need to serve? Right? And, 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 and because we're good, we throw some Bible at ourselves, right? Like, I know I'm saved by grace alone through faith alone, which means that my participation in this is not a part of the equation. Y'all, theologically, yes. But God has so much more in store for us than just phoning it in and waiting it out. There's something about living this Christian life and practicing it that I just want you to hear me say is where the real joy is found in this life. That's what it's all about, and here's why. What you're about to see in the last scene of the book of Daniel is that things are starting to get dark. They're going to get really difficult, and as the future comes, there's a progression towards this darkness, and what Daniel wants you to know is that we are in the middle of that. But as things get pretty dark, and as it seems like the enemy is winning, here's Daniel's, here's Daniel's thing for you that you need to hold on to. You need to stamp it and put it in your book, and you need to remember this. There's a time stamp on evil. It's not going to win. It's going to be over. And in the middle of it, it all goes according to God's plan. You see, the reason... The reason that you need to know these things, the reason you need to practice these things, the reason that you need to be alert about these things is because, listen, the Christian life in the middle of this world is pretty difficult. But spoiler alert, you need to get ready for it because as you do, as Daniel is going to show you, you will become like lights shining in the darkness and God will bring about this beautiful restoration through you. So here's the big idea. Here's the big idea. God's people shine the brightest in the darkest places when they practice their faith. All right? Let's jump into the middle of it. Book of Daniel, chapter 11. I want you to go to verse 20. Let's start there. Then shall arise in his place one who shall send an exactor of tribute for the glory of the kingdom. But within a few days he shall be broken, neither in anger nor in battle. And in his place shall arise a contemptible person, to whom royal majesty has not been given. He shall come in without warning and obtain the kingdom by flatteries. All right, just so you know, chapters 10 through 12, you're jumping back into the deep end is some pretty heavy stuff. We're going to kind of skim along the surface, and I just want you to take this and go back and read it. What you need to understand, if you remember, the book of Daniel is broken up into two major sections. The first six chapters, which everybody loves because it's great narrative stories like Daniel in the lion's den, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, King Nebuchadnezzar, like all these awesome stories. The first six chapters are written in Aramaic. It was the common language of the people. God sent the, the angel Gabriel to go warn the king so that the people could live a certain way. Chapter 7, everything shifts, and now the language is actually in Hebrew, and the angel Gabriel is speaking directly to Daniel, and he's telling him, I need you to go tell God's people how to live in the middle of this. I've told you this before, right? The, the big idea for the book of Daniel is how do believers live in Babylon without letting Babylon live in them? So he comes to tell them what's going to happen. And, and what you need to understand about all biblical prophecy, especially the book of Daniel, is it has a historical component. Everything you're going to see in this book has happened historically. I just read the other day that over 150 prophecies were fulfilled in the last two chapters alone. 
Everything that Daniel says is going to happen. It has a historical component, but it also has what we call an eschatological or end times, meaning it's already happened, but that's there to show you what's going to happen. You need to understand both. You need to understand this has happened, and it's a picture of what's going to happen. I want to give you this. You can take a picture of this if you have your phones. I'm not going to walk through it. But here's just a timeline of Daniel 7 through 12 so you can see how it works. Okay, it's going to go back and forth from this antichrist to this um, figure in time that we call Antichus Epiphanes. And he's showing you how they both work together. Okay, the last two chapters, it happens quite often. Now with that in mind, now that I've confused everyone and summarized this, you need to understand some important details about what's going on. Right now, the angel Gabriel, he takes what we skipped over the first 20 verses here, and he's talking about a guy named Antichus Epiphanes. I told you this, historically speaking. uh, He came during this this intertestamental period, meaning the period between the last book of your Old Testament and the first book of the New Testament. It's one page in your Bible. It's 400 years of history. Antichus Epiphanes was known as being one of the worst human beings to ever live. His name Epiphanes actually means God. He made himself a God. He was so cruel that he killed so many people that the Israelites Israelites gave him a nickname that they would have never said to him. They called him Antichus Epimenes, which literally means Antichus the madman. History will tell us that he came in without warning and he deceived the Egyptians by going to war against them. And in his deception by flattery, he thought that he had won this war over Egypt and united the Syrian empire with the Egyptian empire. So he goes back home to Syria All the while, the Egyptians had deceived him and took away his power and prestige. Well, he got kind of irritated by that because narcissists like their power. So he decides, I'm going to go back to war with Egypt. He goes back down there. And as soon as he gets there, the Romans had brought in their ships to stop Antichus and say, hey, man, I need you to go chill out, relax, and go back home. Now, again, I don't know if you've ever had a conversation with a narcissist that doesn't go very well. Well, instead of going back home, he's super angry and he decides that I'm going to make my way to Jerusalem and just attack the Jews and take my anger out on them. That's what verse 30 says. For the ships of Kittim shall come against him, this is Antichus, and he shall be afraid and withdraw and shall turn back and be enraged and take action against the Holy Covenant. That's God's people. He shall turn back and pay attention to those who have forsaken the Holy Covenant. So you're going to see this. This is important. He goes and he goes in rage against those who walk with Jesus, our God at that time. And then those who forsake God, he gives them stuff. See, Antichus was, was so ticked that this is what he did. And what he, what he ended up doing is he went into Jerusalem, went into the temple. He tore down the God of the temple and erected this altar to Zeus inside of it. And then he forced all the Jews to go to the temple and choose that day who they would worship. Matter of fact, they say the soldiers were so cruel that as they walked in to decide who they were going to worship, he would bring in their wife and their child, and if they chose not to worship Zeus, he would kill the wife and circumcise the child right in front of him. He was awful, 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 awful. Why does any of this matter? Remember, what happened historically is a picture, a type of what's going to happen in the future, and here's the question that Daniel is left with. At the end of the day, what God are you going to worship? 
When culture begins to get tight, when, when, when things get to get rough, who are you going to worship? Are you going to be like those that when it got so bad, they acquiesced to culture because they wanted to preserve their own reality? Or are you going to be like those who decided, I'm going to worship God regardless? Look at verse 32. He shall seduce with flattery those who violate the covenant. But the people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. It's said that as, as they went into the temple, as, as all this is happening, as this altar of Zeus has been erected, he would seduce the people by pulling the money out of the treasury because in the temple he called himself God, so he said it was all his anyway. And then as he's making fun of them because they are deciding to rebel against their God, he's starting to throw gold and silver at them and laugh at them as they're begging for their life. And the question is, who are you going to choose? You know, when culture, when that time comes, when culture becomes so anti-God that they flat out persecute anybody who's on team Jesus, the question that you have to ask yourself is, are you going to be those who are seduced by the flattery of the appeal of all this easy stuff that we get here, or are you going to be those who stand firm and take action? Because I'm telling you, it's going to happen. And the question is, is whose team are you going to be on? And what Jesus wants you to know is don't wait for the game to start because if you wait for the game to start, you're not going to be ready. So begin to practice the Christian life now. Are you going to be on the side that walks with God and stands firm and takes action because you know your God? Are you going to be the ones who just says, you know what, guys, this is too hard anyway. I don't really even know if I was in or out. I just did it because that's what I was told to do. And it's just too hard. If you're going to stand with Jesus, let me give you a couple practical ways to help you do that, to help you practice the Christian life now so that when that time comes, you'll be ready. Here's number one. Know the word. Know the word. You know this word that you hold in your hands, it's 66 books written by 40 different authors over the course of a couple thousand years, and you should not have this thing. One of the greatest proof texts that the Bible is actually sufficient and real is the fact that you hold it in your hands. I don't know if you know this, but as soon as they killed Jesus, that Roman Empire did not want you to have this word, and they spent the next 250 years trying to destroy this word. Every single one of the apostles were killed because of this word, except for John, who died on the island of Patmos after being boiled alive, surviving, and then exiled, and then he wrote the book of John and the book of Revelation so that you can have this word. Everything in human history says you shouldn't have it. Men gave their lives for it. Kingdoms have tried to destroy it. And yet it has survived the course of history because it is God's word. And Christianity Today tells you that 26 million Americans during COVID decide to stop reading it altogether. Lifeway Research says this, those among us that call ourselves church-going Christians, not the ones that just claim to be Christians, but those who call ourselves church-going Christians, among us, 32% of us say we read our Bibles irregularly, and 12% say that I never read my Bible at all. Maybe the saddest reality of our life right now is the fact that we have this word in our hands that people have died for, and yet we have all-time highs of biblical illiteracy. The famous philosopher G.K. Chesterton said the problem with Christianity is not that it's been tried and found wanting, it's that it's been found difficult and left untried. Y'all, there are two things in this world, two things, just two things that God breathed life into. You and this word. And if he loved you enough to die for you, don't you think he loves this word like that? 
Paul says that this word that you hold in your hands is God-breathed and profitable for everything that life has to offer. The psalmist says it's good. It's like gold. It's like better than the drippings of the honeycomb, he said. The psalmist tells you that you should think about this word like this. Even if you don't believe this word, this word is so wise that if you would just follow it, I'm telling you, you don't even have to believe it. It's going to make you a happier person, a healthier person. You're probably going to live longer. Think about it. Think about the things that it says. I mean... Where do you think the, this idea of equality came from? Don't, don't let the Enlightenment fool you. A guy named Glenn Screvena wrote a book, a historical book called The Air We Breathe, in which he makes the historical claim that everything that we believe about equality happened as a result of Jesus. And if you actually go back pre-Jesus, none of it existed. Where do you think this equality came from? That you were born and made in the image of God. That you should have human rights. It did not come from evolution. It came from Jesus. That justice for the poor and the marginalized. That people, you know, that Jesus is the very first person in all of human history that says, love your enemy. You know, the only reason why you don't believe in survival of the fittest, which is the leading theory of Darwinian evolution, is because of Jesus. The reason why we care about others, the reason why we look at people with different skin colors and say you're just as much in the image of God as I am is not because of evolution, it's because of God. Here's the deal. God's word, it's not just good practically. As you follow God's word, it will actually make you the type of person that will fall in love with Jesus because it's powerful, it's living, it's breathing, and it's active. You know, one of the greatest lessons that anybody ever taught me was this. If you want to stop sinning, stop thinking about your sin and fall in love with something better. Thomas Chalmers, he was a famous Puritan. He called this the explosive power of a new affection. It's like this. Think about it. I love my wife. But the reason that I'm faithful to my wife is not because there's not other pretty women in the world. The reason that I'm faithful to my wife is because I love my wife more than I want that. Because I pursue her and I date her and we continually think about that. It's not because I've closed off my mind to that. Are you kidding me? It's because I love my wife more. The explosive power of a new affection says if you want to stop sinning, stop thinking about your sin and start falling in love with Jesus, and over time you'll stop wanting those things and you'll want that more. Now, I'm a guy, so here's how I think. Once you've tried the filet mignon, you never want to go back to the flank steak, right? God's word is like beautiful steak on a plate to you. Why do you keep going back to a culture that's serving you a cold hamburger? Come on, y'all. God's word is good. Number two, surround yourself with community. You know, there's a major difference between connection and community. We're more connected than we've ever been, and yet I think the internet's like New York City. My wife, or my, my sister lives in Manhattan, surrounded by 22 million strangers, and it's the loneliest place on earth. Don't fool yourself. Just because you have 5,000 friends on Facebook doesn't mean that they're your community. Listen, they will always affirm you because they fell in love with your highlight reel and not you. <laughs> you know, I put our family pictures online. Oh, one day I'm going to publish the 64 of them where we are fighting each other and about to kill each other. And we're like, if you don't smile, cheese. <laughs> and while I'm on this subject, stop, stop comparing yourself to everybody else's highlight reel. Their life's just as hard as yours. Don't be fooled because they put the stuff on Twitter that you think that they want you to see. Listen, we're in this race together. I'm telling you, I'm telling you, I'm telling you, connectedness is not community. We need real face-to-face -face connection with people who know us and still choose to love us. 
not who know a fake version of us and like that version. I'm telling you, the internet has proven that you can have thousands of people that you're connected to and still be deeply hurting and still be lonely, and yet they will still affirm you because they don't know you. What you need is you need community, and I'm going to tell you particularly you need church community because that kind of community has benefits that are necessary for making it in this world. For one, church community is a reminder that you're not alone. Look around. It's it's raining outside. It's dismal outside. You could have chosen 46,000 other things to do with your day, and you chose to show up here and to listen to me rant for 45 minutes. That's not why you came. You came because you wanted to meet with God and you met with one another and with God and it's an encouragement. Hebrews chapter 12 says that you're surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses, people who went before you, that you stand on the shoulders of giants and people that are going with you. God's church has always been up against the ropes of culture and listen to me, it's never failed and it's not going to. I'm telling you, you are not going to lose this battle if you hang out with King Jesus. You know, there's been multiple times over the last five years after we moved here that if I can just be real with you, I think we're all a bunch of adults. I just wanted to quit. COVID, sometimes I'm like, oh, I can't win. I want to do this to do, protect you. I want to do this because you're free. I was like, I don't know. what. I just want to go crawl in a hole. And if it wasn't for some of you who just continue to encourage me to say, just keep going. God is doing a good thing. And we're in this with you. It's like Moses going out to battle and you're like, Moses, you can't keep your arms up and people just come alongside of you and just keep lifting them. (laughs) When my wife went to the hospital for two two months last summer, if I'm not kidding you, if you wouldn't have fed me, I think me and my kids would have starved. I don't know. Like they can't they can't eat enough ramen noodles. Some of you guys took care of us. When I can't parent my kids, and I'm thinking that I'm busy, and I know every one of us thinks we're busy, it's like we wear it like a badge of honor and and I'm sitting there thinking, man, I got four kids. They're all playing sports. We ain't got no time. And then Jim looks at me and he, he says the other day, just wait till they get a little older. I'm like, you know what, though? It's an encouragement. Just keep going. You're going to survive. You're going to make it. Your kids are going to be okay. You're doing a good job. Hey, y'all, church Church is there to be an encouragement. Not only does the book of Hebrews say you're surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses, it says you're there to spur each other on when you just don't want to go anymore. You spur each other on, right? We serve one another because, listen, you have innate value in the person that you are. You're not just a sentient being. You're made in the image of God. He loves you, and so should we. God has designed this community so that we can stand for one another and we can stand together because I'm telling you, Christianity is supposed to be a team sport, not an individual sport. And if you try to do it on your own, you're going to be at a huge disadvantage. I know the church has flaws. I know it because I'm a part of it. But you know what? Just because I'm jacked up does not make Christianity any less true. And God has called us to this beautiful thing And Jesus says, I came to be a hospital for the sick. So if you reject the church because it's filled with hypocrites, number one, thanks for being here because you're one of us. And number two, you're not going to find a perfect church. But you will find a perfect Savior who is making his church beautiful. So if you try to do it on your own, you're going to be attacked. Listen, you you know when, I, I love the Discovery Channel. You know when lion attacks, right? When the poor wounded antelope is by himself. And we all know that Satan's a cat, so this is what happens. I could just 
give you some pastoral advice. You're going to believe the lie because of your shame that you need to run away and be by yourself. And in those moments, Satan is going to eat you alive. What you need to do is you need to connect back into community because we love you. And if you're dealing with it, so is somebody else in this room. Don't feel shame. We're all going through the same mess. It might have a different name behind it, but it's the same thing. Don't believe the lie. Here's number three. Number three is guard your heart. Guard your heart. Here's what I mean by your heart. Watch this. Your eyes and your ears are the filter of your heart, okay? So what you see and what you listen to will change and shape your heart. So here's what I mean is guard your eyes and your ears. Did you know that the average person, average, spends seven hours on a screen time every day? I did a little math. I'm not good at math, but here's what that means. 2,055 hours a year is on screens, 106 days a year, and 22 years over your lifetime. I don't know about you, but I think that vegging out on Netflix and watching TikTok reels endlessly might be contributing to the problem. One counselor told me recently, she said, you know what the most common denominator I see among teenagers who are highly depressed and anxious? This is one thing. They don't go outside and they're on screens all day long. Now, I, I'm a big fan of sports. I played them all year, but you don't, your kids don't have to play sports. Just go outside. Go play with one another. Let them go bite on the trampoline a little bit. Now, depression is at an all-time high. Suicide rates are at an all-time high. I don't know if you know this. I'm a chaplain for the police department, and I get called out to two types of suicide. Teenage girls and 50-year-old men. Almost always, it's those two groups. It breaks my heart for different reasons. The teenage girl who's never been affirmed in her identity to say God loves you, and the 50-year-old man who's pursued the American dream only to get to the end of it and realize that his ladder's been leaning up against the wrong wall the entire time. Both of those realities hurt my heart so much. People are super anxious because their intake is forming their hearts and culture is not forming it around Jesus. Listen, when you consume culture 24-7, at some point culture is going to consume you. If you're informed and discipled more by Fox News and CNN than you are about Jesus, what do you think is going to happen? Guard your heart. You need to think about your heart like exercise. The inputs create the outputs, right? If your inputs are all sugar, at the end of the day, you're going to be unhealthy. If your inputs are all culture, at the end of the day, you're going to become culture. So let me just get practically. Here's, here's just really a couple of things you can do to guard your inputs. Number one is pray. I've told you this. Pray. Just pray, pray, pray. It's a conversation between you and God. How do you do that? We'll talk about that next week. Just pray. Number two, guard your friendships. You show me your five closest friends, I'm going to show you your future. I'm telling you, you become exactly like your friendships. Number three, get outside. That might sound simple. Go on a walk. Romans 1 says the heavens declare the glory of God. You want to see God's glory? Go look at the majesty of his creation. Take a deep breath and spend time outside. Number four, practice holiness. I was always taught that holiness was a fence that boxed me in. Really, it's a fence that keeps evil out. You know how I know that? I've never met a single person who cheated, coveted, did everything wrong that wasn't absolutely miserable. Why don't you just try holiness for a little while? You know what it'll do? It'll bring joy to your life. Here's number four. It's going to be real quick, worship. Worship literally means ascribing ultimate value to something. It comes from the word worth-ship. W-O-R-T-H, ship. 
That's where we get the word worship from. It's ascribing ultimate value to something because that will determine what you give your life to. Here's the idea. What you spend the most time doing, whether or not you want to admit it, is actually what you functionally worship. So worship. All right, back to the text, verse 33. And the wise, take note of this, underline this, and the wise among the people shall make many understand. So you're in the midst of Antichus Epiphanes, and the wise among the people shall make many understand. Though for some days they shall stumble by the sword and flame, by captivity and plunder, when, the, when they stumble, they shall receive a little help, and many shall join themselves to them with flattery, and some of the wise shall stumble, so that they may be refined. That's a good word. Sometimes your stumbling is there not to, not to judge you, but God wants to refine you, purify you, make you white as snow until the time of the end, for it still awaits the appointed time. Take note of this, the power of one. You know, historically speaking, what will end up happening here is this wise was actually one person, and this one person created a revolution. They call his name Matthias, and in this verse, what you see is that this guy, he walked in historically into this temple of God. He tore down the altar of Zeus in front of Antichus, and then he ran for his life. He went into the desert, and he went in there with a couple of people. And during that time when he was with a couple of people, he began to start to form them theologically. He poured into their spiritual formation. He taught them about God. And then what that led to was him having a son named Judas Maccabeus, who ended up taking on the, the Maccabean revolt that came and took power away from Antichus and back into God's people. One person decided to stand up in the middle of a culture and everything changed. Here's my question. Why not us? Why not you? What if the history books looked at you one day and said, that person, Ben himself, stood up and lived a counterculture life? He decided he was going to love his family well. And so what he did is he offered his life to Jesus and not to culture. And through that, the attractiveness of that is he brought a couple people along with him. And by him doing that, they stood up and ultimately God refined their lives because of it. Here's the deal. I'll just be honest with you. I want every single person on the planet to come to know Jesus. I do. Why? Because listen, Jesus is better than life. And I just know, I know, I know, I know because I've experienced it. Walking with Jesus will make your marriage better. It will change who you are. I believe that Jesus brings joy to life. And I believe that God's church is the best decision you can make. And if I believe that and if I've experienced that, I've seen it in my life and in your life, why would I not want everybody in the entire world to know that? We, we believe in this thing around here called gospel balance, okay? Gospel balance means this. You don't have to choose between evangelism and discipleship. What that means is we want everybody on the planet to know Jesus. As a matter of fact, that's what God wants. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. He doesn't want anybody to perish, but all to know him and have everlasting life. And as he does that, what I want is I want God to form your lives in this deep discipleship and this spiritual formation that grows you and roots you deeply into God's word. And I believe that we should get after both of those at the same exact time. And when you do, it's so beautiful. Now listen, that's going to take some. Anytime you live in balance, people tend to get mad on both sides. But I just believe that that's what God wants for his church. Evangelism, discipleship. I love the way D.L. Moody, one of, my, one of my spiritual heroes, here's how he says it. When people accuse him of only caring about growth, he says this. It's clear that you don't like my way of doing evangelism. And you raise some pretty good points. Frankly, 
Sometimes I don't like my way of doing evangelism, but I like my way of doing it better than your way of not doing it. You know, what if we decided to throw in stones to love the unlovable, forgive without limits, pursue justice for the oppressed, to be unified around something bigger than ourselves, to get after this thing called the gospel, even if it's just one, even if it's just one. Every single individual's lives matter because they're made in the image of God and God loves them. I say all this because historically speaking, this stuff is going to happen. It's going to happen. If you look in your Bibles, we're going to make a transition between um, Daniel chapter 11, verse 35, and Daniel chapter 11, verse 36. The first 35 chapters are about Antiochus Epiphanes, and then you zoom into the future, a thousand, thousands of years, to verse 37, which is about the Antichrist. They're pictures put next to one another, juxtaposed to one another, to show you what happened in history is going to happen in the future. All right, so as you got a picture of what Antichus did, here's what Daniel, through the angel Gabriel, through God, wants you to know. It's gonna happen again. Look at it in verse 36. Here's, he's talking about Antichrist. And the king shall do as he wills. He shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every god and shall speak astonishing things against the god of gods. He shall prosper till the indignation is complete for what is decreed shall be done. Y'all, things aren't going to be that pretty. But the hope is he's going to do it, but it will have an end. Verse 39. He shall deal with the strongest fortresses with the help of a foreign God. Those who acknowledge him, this is sad. Listen, those who acknowledge him, which means some will, he shall load with honor. It's going to be a lot easier. He shall make them rulers over many and shall divide the land for a price. Notice that those who acquiesce have a much easier life. They get honor, they get praise, they get land. You know, the same thing happened with Antichus, right? Same exact thing. The same thing is starting to happen today. Isn't it true that those who acquiesce to the cultural mandates of our day tend to have an easier life? Don't ever mention the traditional family. Don't ever talk about dads needing to lead. Never hit gender ideology. And guess what? People will leave you alone. You start talking about God in the neutral, no problem. Talk about Jesus, people get on fire. It's a lot easier not to do anything. But I'm telling you, doing nothing does not change people's lives. And we sit in this in-between. And in the in-between, we need to be ready for what's going to happen, and we need to be prepared to tell people about this loving God that came to put an end to sin and evil. Last important detail, verse 45. And he shall pitch his palladial tents between the sea of the glorious, between the sea and the glorious mountain. Yet he shall come to his end. There it is, with none to help him. This place this historical place between the sea, which is the Mediterranean Sea, and this mountain range was called the Valley of Armageddon. Jim and I were there a couple weeks ago, and historians will tell you that there's been more bloodshed in this fertile mountain range and this valley in between than anywhere else in human history. And the Bible tells you that that is the exact place that the greatest battle of all time is going to happen, where King Jesus is going to come, and he's going to put an end to this thing called evil. Now, here's the beautiful thing. When Jesus died on the cross, he didn't say, wait. He said, it's finished. It's only a matter of time. Satan's like a dog on a leash. Like, God just want to pull. What you have to understand is it's all going to come to an end. It's all going to come to an end. And yet, 
And yet what culture needs more than anything right now is to know this hope that's only found in King Jesus. You see, you have a resource at your disposal that many people don't have. When you go on Facebook today and you see that the, the, the gender reveal party for the baby comes out and they pop the balloon on the video and it, it opens up and you see the celebrations happen, just realize that somebody on the other end is, is going to be mourning the fact that they can't have a child. When you see that somebody goes and their video and they're ringing the bell because now they're cancer free, somebody else in this church just sat by the bedside of their mom as she took her last breath because cancer took her life. Next week or two weeks from now, when we celebrate Mother's Day, and we are going to celebrate Mother's Day because you moms are awesome, you're going to have people that are going to walk into this room, and they're going to carry the weightiness of the fact that they can't be a mom. Maybe it's because they biologically can't or because the decision that they made in their past that said that they terminated their baby. And culture doesn't have resources to deal with that. J.R.R. Tolkien, the famous writer of Lord of the Rings, said, "All one day, God's going to make all the sad things become untrue. The thing that gives you hope in the middle is the fact that death will be put to death. He will wipe away every tear from your eyes. Death will be no more. He will be your God. You will be his people. You will live with him for all of eternity. And what you need to know and what you need to tell people is, hey, I get it because I've been there. I know what you're experiencing, and it's not okay. And that's why God is going to come back to do an end to evil. You have the most powerful resource that this world does not have. And you need to tell them about it. Listen to me. When culture is so dark that it has nothing to give, you have something beautiful that you can give. This is exactly what Jesus says. Matthew chapter 5, Sermon on the Mount. It's one of his most famous, most practical sayings. You remember this? You are the salt of the earth. You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how, how should saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. Do you know that salt has two functions? Salt preserves things. Remember, back before refrigeration, you had to salt things to make this beef jerky that we all love now. And it makes it taste good. Here's what Jesus is saying. Your job, your job is to preserve this gospel life and to make Jesus taste sweet to the world. And if you'll do that, if you'll do that, something beautiful will happen. He keeps going. Remember this? You're city on a hill. I don't know if you need to know this or not, but cities aren't individuals. They're people collected together. He's talking to the church, all of us together. You're a city on a hill. And a city on a hill cannot be hidden. I love that. When the church acts like the church, everybody's going to know. Nor do people light a lamp and put it underneath a basket, but on a stand and gives light to the whole house. See, what he's saying is as you're in this city, St. Augustine, what did he say? The church is supposed to be the city of God living inside the city of man, inside of enemy territory, bringing something beautiful from within, a beautiful resilience as God's people live a certain way. He says this, as you take your individual light and you take it out from underneath that basket and you let it shine, you make the whole thing look beautiful. And here's what happens. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works. This is why you practice what you do. They see what your good works and then they glorify the Father who is in heaven. You're a window into something beautiful. Oh, you need to let the light of the gospel shine brightly in you. Are you passionate about King Jesus and his church? I'm telling you, man, Jesus is passionate about his church. 
You know, he's so passionate about his church. I was, I was here at this place to where Jesus brought Peter, and he says in Matthew chapter 14, the gates of hell will not prevail against this church. As he looked at Peter and he says, who do you say that I am? He says, you are the Lord, you are the Christ. And then he looks back at this thing. It's this big old picture, and it's a historical site called the gates of hell where all this idol worshiping was taking place. And Jesus says, come here. See that thing that represents all of culture? You see it? See it? It ain't going to prevail. Y'all, it's like he's looking at you and saying, come here, look at culture. See what it's saying. It looks like it's winning. Everybody's there. Nobody's here. There's just 12 of us. And all the culture is that, he's like, it's not going to win. I died for my church. I love my church. The gates of hell will not prevail against this thing. Listen to me. Let me bring it home to you. What you're suffering with, what you're feeling, the anxiety that you feel, the pressure that you feel, it's not going to win. King Jesus will have the last word. And he wants to bring you in. He says, I'm going to build my church. And you're a part of it. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. But here's the battle you're up against. Here's the battle you're up against. I skipped a verse. Let me, let me state that one really quickly. It's verse three. It connects all this. It says, those who are wise, that's the believers, shall shine like the brightness of the sky above. And those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. Now, here's what you're up against. Verse 4. But you, but you, Daniel, shut up the word and seal the book until the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro and knowledge shall increase. Knowledge is increasing. You know, we have the internet and if Google says it, it must be true. We have social media. Now we have chat GPT. It will actually write your sermon for you. This one's not written by it, but it will. Knowledge is increasing at a rate that is astronomical. Listen to this. It's estimated until the, the year of 1900, human knowledge doubled every century. Every 100 years, cumulative knowledge doubled. By the end of World War II, knowledge was doubling every 25 years. By 2013, it was doubling every 12 months. Today, it's estimated that knowledge, human knowledge, doubles every single day. And by the end of this year, they say that knowledge will double every 12 hours. Knowledge is growing at an indescribable rate and it's not fixing our problems because knowledge is not wisdom. You can be smart. I've known a lot of real, real dumb smart people. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, the, the wisdom of God is foolishness to the world, but you know what? It's like a pleasing aroma that will attract people back to him. What people need is God's word. Do you realize that you have the greatest news at, on your, at your fingertips? The God of the universe, he's called you. He's put a spirit inside of you and he's given you the thing that the world needs, the thing the world wants. And if you had the cure for cancer and you withheld it because you were afraid of offending somebody, what would that say about you? I tell people all the time as we enter into friendships, before they know I'm a pastor because then they wouldn't enter into a friendship with me. Um, but before that, I tell them, hey, listen, if I believe that Jesus really is who he said that he is, if I believe that he really did that, that there's a difference between life and death, heaven and hell by what I believe about Jesus, what kind of friend would I be if I didn't tell you about that? I wouldn't be a good friend because I'm afraid to offend you. I'd be a terrible friend. Like, I want you to know about this thing. You have the best news ever. And it's not news that's found through knowledge. The enlightenment has not cured the world. Jesus will. And here's your hope. Let me land the plane here. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake. 
some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. The hope of the gospel is a window of hope into a resurrection. See, because Jesus is who he said that he is, because he rose from the dead, he will resurrect you from the dead too. Your hope in the middle is the fact that King Jesus is going to do exactly what he said that he was going to do. Now, I don't know what that's going to look like, but I do know you will have a physical body. Like, I kind of think my body's going to look like Chris Hinsworth, and I'm not going to have any more back problems. The gray hair is going to go away, and I'm not going to keep losing it back here. That's supposed to be a joke. I heard somebody say today, that didn't work. And that hurt me just about as much as it hurt you. Like, it really hurts whenever you do a joke and it's like, yeah, that landed flat. You practice righteousness now, though, by the way, because you're not just preparing for a day when you die. It's because God is giving you life everlasting now. 2 Corinthians 5.17, therefore, if anybody's in Christ, he's a new creation now. Now, now, now. The old has passed away, the new has come. God promises you this glimpse of resurrected life now. See, King Jesus will come back about one day. He will fix all the evil of this world. He came the first time, like he said. He did the most amazing thing ever, the most unimaginable thing. He loved you till the end. And in the end, after he took his last breath, he got up out of that grave. He kicked death's butt. He put death to death. He walked out of there to give you everlasting life, to show you he has power over every single grave that you could ever have. And listen to me, every single person, every person, that has ever lived will raise from the dead to everlasting life or to everlasting contempt. I know we don't like to talk about hell around here, but if hell didn't exist, then Jesus's death would be unnecessary. And the only people on the planet who have a problem with that is this. It's people who have never really suffered. Because if you've ever experienced any kind of deep injustice, you want a God who cares about justice, who's going to put an end to all of this evil. And God did. And he gives you hope. See, because God is all loving, he absorbed in himself the punishment. Because he's all good, he had to exact the punishment. And instead of giving it to you, he gave it to the truly innocent one who died in your place. And he did that to give you everlasting life. And until that day comes, as this battle ensues, he has called all of us to give people around us this good news of Jesus. Chris Drinker. I hated Chris Drinker. I hated Chris Drinker. Chris would call me. He'd call me. He'd bring me to lunch. He'd call me. I'd be hungover, partying. He'd call me. I hated Chris. Oh, Chris, I felt like he was judging me. Then I began to hate the fact that I didn't hate Chris. I hated that even more. As much as I wanted Chris to leave me alone, it's like... There's something absolutely beautiful about the way that he loved me. He never judged me. He continued to pursue me. He continued to be Jesus. And something began to happen in my life as I, as I watched Chris Drinkard's life, as I watched his marriage, as I watched the way he unconditionally loved me and didn't, and he's patient with me and kind with me. He began to transform my life. And you know, I look back, 15 years ago at this man named Chris who sacrificed for me. And I love my wife. I love her so much. I love my kids. I didn't have a daddy growing up and I had a guy who loved me like that. And he's changed the trajectory of my life because he just cared about one person. And one person who had the audacity to stand in the gap changed me. 
And I don't know about you, but I don't want to get to the end of my life and not be like Chris Drinker. I don't want to get to the end of my life and be like, you know what, I just phoned it in. Who is your Billy? Who's the person that you can simply just be Jesus to, the aroma of life to? God has called you, he's equipped you, he's put his spirit inside of you, and something beautiful happens when we become a rebellion from the inside, a beautiful resistance to culture. Because you know how the end is going to come, we practice it in the middle. I'm telling you, I'm telling you, that's when God's church is beautiful. That's when the world changes. King Jesus, would you be glorified? What we need more than anything is we need more of you and we need to be more like you. God, you are going to build your church. You are going to come back. You are going to resurrect us to everlasting life. I just want you to do it for more people. Not because of ego or anything. I just want people to experience the love that you have. You're better than life, Jesus. We don't worship you for a better life. We worship you because you are better than life. I want to spend my life giving people more of you, going deeper with you. Help us. In Jesus' name.